In this episode, the Deming Institute releases the New Economics Study Session Number 4. This discussion covers Chapter 6, Management of People, and Chapter 7, The Red Beads. So we are in Session uh, 4 of the New Economics Discussion Series. We're going to look at Chapter 6. Management of People in Chapter 7, The Red Beads, which also happens to be about management of people. I want to review two things with you. Deming says in Chapter 6, the aim of the chapter is to examine ways to manage people under the new philosophy. That's the system of profound knowledge viewpoint. And under the Red Beads, he says, the aim of the chapter is to teach by an experiment a number of important principles. A summary of the principles learned appears at the end of this chapter. If you had a chance to look at the uh, summary of the lessons from the red beads, what you will find is that although some people think red, the red bead experiment is about statistics and statistical process control, Deming's list of 14 items talks about how what you see in the variation in the data, how that tells you, how that informs you in a way that allows you to manage better. So. It's not so much, the experiment's not so much about statistical process control as it is about how to manage people and the variation in the system. So, with the management of people, Deming seems to have a different view of that, and he says under the tyranny of the prevailing style, what we have is a prison. We're living in a prison. So he talks about the forces of destruction. What's going on there? And, and how does that relate to what goes on in schools and businesses? I think that diagram uh, is a classic. Uh, I, I, I've never seen any management uh, and any text on management uh, ever look at things like this. In fact, uh, it is a, such a shock that people actually uh, initially, I think the initial reaction was, this, this is rubbish, it, it can't be. But then um, as, as time goes by, the one thing that strikes you is, yes, I went through the same thing. They continue to be in denial for a long time because it's it's the complete truth. That that, that diagram is the complete truth. Which, which diagram? Page 122, Forces of Destruction. And what's intriguing to me is that not purposefully, but inadvertently, and certainly in education, in, in the rating and ranking of performance of individuals in industry, in healthcare, in government, we manage, the management style is applying those forces of destruction. And, and so instead of restoring, what Deming wants us to do is restore the individual, allow him to take pride and joy in his work and learning, and allow that to unleash the power that's possible when you're not busy holding people down, whether it's purposefully or accidentally. My belief is it's mostly accidentally. There's no conception that what's being done is really harming not only the individual, but the potential 
benefit to the organization. Yeah, just to add a little on the on the diagram. So if we look at the self-esteem side, and I think about how do I translate this to the business world, uh, I would say that on the bottom half where we have the self-esteem is that's where we get creativity, innovation, and solutions. And above the curve is where we get conformity, where we don't have uh, progress. So just a, a little example, if you think of someone like Elon Musk, he, he's not doing SpaceX and Tesla because he wants to get the biggest return, make the most money. His overall intrinsic goal is he would like to get to Mars and what are the things that can help build towards that path. And the focus is on building towards that path with creativity and innovation, not just on worrying about making quarterly profits. Yeah, certainly a, a, a focus on the short term. You might be able to make some gains in the short term by applying some of these things that Deming calls forces of destruction. But in the long run, they are destructive, corrosive. They will, they will deplete the energy, the creativity, and the innovation from the organization. You can create people who will sit around waiting to be told what to do. Transformation is required in government, industry, and education. Uh, this, this bit, uh, the transformation will take us into a new method of reward, all the way to everyone will win, no losers. Uh, this bit, according to me, is the crux and the edifice of the Deming philosophy. In fact, when I begin my talk on Dr. Deming, I begin with this slide and I, I just keep it on. And uh, I say if anybody wants to explain the Deming philosophy, here is it. He talks about transformation. I love this sentence, we must restore the individual and do so in the complexities of the interaction with the rest of the world. So he does not ignore the systemic uh, contribution. He doesn't he just say restore the individual, but also in a system. So when we talk about transformation, Deming said it was discontinuous, sort of like your light bulb goes on and then maybe you're stable for a while. Then maybe you have another jump with something else occurs to you. So he talks about the individual once transformed will will set an example and he will he will try to apply this and he will see things differently. But for an organization to transform, somebody in power and authority who controls resources has to go through a personal transformation and then decide that he is willing to invest the time and energy in trying to get the organization to transform. So while it starts with the individual, having a lot of individuals, if they don't control any power or resources, while they can do good things and create examples for others, it's gonna be hard to get the organization to transform, impossible, unless you get somebody in the power structure who controls resources to be able to become involved and decide this is something that should be done. Yeah, I, I think it's an, interest, an interesting point that perhaps one of the reasons why uh, the Japanese picked up and, and ran with it in the 1950s was, was as has been said before, uh, one, he was talking to 80% of the capital, so the people who could control that, but two, they were literally flattened. They, they they didn't have an alternative. They 
were open to trying something new because they had been forced to. Um, and it's that realization that is is possibly difficult to achieve. Yeah, what I what I perceived both among engineers and uh, managers is that there's some kind of belief that the next new thing can be brought about by studying the existing system. There seems to be less of a desire to jump out of the existing system and say, what's something new we can do? And I think there's a fear of giving up something that might be valuable. And so the tendency is to stay with the current whatever it is and try to find out what part of it is not so good and see if you can fix that not so good part. And what Russ Acoff always pointed out is that when you're working with systems, getting rid of something you don't want doesn't give you what you want. And it might create something worse. What's required is instead of looking at the system you've got, the existing system, and studying what works and what doesn't work in it, what you need to do is engage in the design activity. Russ used idealized design. You present, pretend the system you have was destroyed last night, and this morning you have the ability to put anything you want in its place. What would you put in its place? So now you have to work on creativity and building something new as opposed to finding out what's wrong with something old. It's a very different approach. And it's a scary approach. Well, I've seen that I've seen that in so many meetings where you you if you allow it as soon as someone makes a suggestion the next person in says no that won't work um, and so you immediately cap it you cap the innovation you, you almost have to force it where you say when if you're facilitating it you say we're not going to you know in this in this stage we're, we're just looking at what is possible because that sustains a chain reaction. Um, but it is such a natural tendency if people sat around a room, somebody says, we could do this, and the next person in goes, no, nah, that'll never work, or we've tried it before, or, and, and it just caps it the whole time. Yeah, there's a very interesting thinking technique that Edward de Bono uh, touts called Six Thinking Hats, which helps overcome a lot of that. He has six different colored hats. Each hat represents a different framework for thinking. And the mm -hmm. uh, white hat is about data and information. The red hat is about gut feel, hunch, and instinct. The green hat is about alternatives and what could we do instead and what else could we do. The yellow hat's about what are the positives. He calls it the logical positives. The black hat is the logical negatives, which we're pretty good at. The blue hat's about sort of managing the thinking process. And the, and one of the things he offers is you can use that as an individual, but when you use it in groups, everybody wears the same color hat at the same time. Mm. So if you've got the green hat on where you're generating ideas and somebody generates an idea and somebody else says, here's what's wrong with it, the here's what's wrong with it is the black hat. And so the correct response by anyone in the group is you've got the wrong color hat on. We need more alternatives. We're not using the black hat right now. And yeah. it's very effective. Well, the, the, the example I like is from that um, film Apollo 13 where it, everything is planned, everything is done to a standard until it all goes wrong. And yeah. then you've got, that, you, you've got that group 
who are told, I know that your system that you've put together is to do this, but now you have to find a way to make it do something else. And the, and the creativity that's caused by that. But, but they have to be told, I know that you think it can't be done, but just stop that and, and think how it could be done. Yeah, and, and Deming puts, Deming places management in the position and gives them the responsibility of creating the environment so that people can, can instead of being judged and put into slots, can use their creativity and their thinking to cooperate and coordinate to help achieve the aim of the organization overall. That's a very different role from what most managers see their role as. Most managers get trapped into the, the rating and ranking activity and, and pushing goals and objectives and drumming on people to meet them. And Deming offers in here 14 or 15, what he calls roles of a manager of people under the new philosophy. And if you look yeah. at them, they're very different from the roles that you would see even in, in, a, in a job description of a manager of an executive in an organization. I, uh, this this uh, role of a manager of people, uh, I believe he almost wrote a similar kind of a text in Out of the Crisis, and he brought it in here. But uh, I remember this book, I picked up something about quality, and uh, of course it had uh, articles written by all the experts, and there was this, this uh, article by Dr. Denning. I think this was the last one, uh, because they said this is dedicated to uh, Dr. Deming since he passed away recently. So uh, in that, Dr. Deming interestingly writes the 14 principles of leadership. And uh, people thought that they were talking about his 14 points. But when you read it, it is these 14 points, 14 principles of leadership. Yeah, I, f I find it interesting that that if you look at these 14 points, and you look at his 14 points that he popularized in uh, out of the crisis, what you find is they are not in and of themselves a theory. They are a set of roles or, or things to go do, but they are based on a theory. And if, if you remember the last chapter, System of Profound Knowledge, that's the theory they're based on. If you look at this, these roles of a manager have to do with appreciating a system, understanding variation, knowledge of psychology, and theory of knowledge, a, a way to continually learn. And that's the basis for these being the roles. So while Deming conceived of the actions in his head, he clearly had a theory, but until he was provoked into what do you mean by knowledge, and then he used profound knowledge, <laughs> They provoked him some more and said, what do you mean by profound knowledge? And so he started working in a late 89 or early 90 on what profound knowledge was. And there were several variations. And what you see published here is the variation that was in existence about the time he died in 1993. And it may have been different today had he been around because he was a continuous learner. I believe uh, it was 1989. The the paper that he presented at Osaka, Foundations of the Management of Quality in the Western World. Uh, he, he's not changed things ever since. The four uh, parts of profound knowledge have been the same.
the text. Uh, it was pre that, I think, where he wrote knowledge of interaction of forces and things like that. And then uh, finally he sifted the whole thing through and brought it down to these four. Michael, Michael Tweedy, in his webinar for N2N a few years ago, went through the history that he has of profound knowledge and, and the changes. And it had, as, it had as many as, I think, I think as many as 12 elements or, or eight. Yes. And, and it, it varied while he was trying to decide how to codify it best. And it ended up with the four and their interdependencies. From those four, you can get the role of a manager under that new philosophy, and you can get his 14 points when you try to apply system of, a system of profound knowledge to transforming a prevailing style of management organization. Mm. I, mean, I, th I think it's interesting because when I was at, when I went through the Naval College, they were teaching leadership, um, and they gave the example of how one time they were trying to define it by the characteristics of a leader so that those could be taught. And it had um, set an example, um, all these different things. And then they said that people then tried to learn what those were and you had someone and time management was in there. So one guy was, it's probably apocryphal, but um, said, right, I'm going to divide up my time. I'm going to focus on Monday on being punctual and then Monday afternoon, I'll be an example. And Tuesday, you know, so he didn't quite get it until when I went back. I had a nice circular career. I went back as my last job teaching leadership. And by then they just said, we'll teach a definition. And then people can work out how they can work to that. And that, that was where it, it came down to um, leadership is about inspiring others to take action. And then if you hold that, you don't need to worry about learning 15 attributes. You can just be yourself and, you know, and, and, and keep it to something very simple. And I think that's the that's the beauty of having a, a philosophy that that has four elements. Um, you don't need to worry about learning 14 attributes of a good manager. If, if you understand it, it will follow. Yes. Yeah, that's that's interesting what you said it, because he says it follows naturally. Yeah, there, there it goes. It just proves it. I didn't even read that with. <laughs> what? Russ Acoff. Russ Acoff in that article, uh, transformation. Something about transformational leadership. Uh, he he distinguishes between leader, manager, and administrator, having to do with the aim. Who, who is in charge of the aim and who is in charge of the means? And under a leader, the a, a, a leader may have created the aim, but the people he's leading have bought into the aim and they have either helped establish the aim or they bought into it. And as far as the method of achieving it, they've either bought into the method or helped establish the method. So now you have everybody on the same wavelength. And he distinguishes that from the, the activity of a manager because a manager is trying to direct people toward a, an aim that they didn't create using methods that they may not have been involved in creating and may not agree with. And that's a different kind of activity. Yeah. 
and it soon gets diverted from it gets diverted from achieving the the aim to um, conformance with the method. Yeah, and, and and measuring progress. Russ Russ Acuff was so interesting. He said things that just shook up all kinds of people. I remember one of his great lines is, "If you're if you have to measure how well you're doing, you're not doing very well." <laughs> so it should be obvious you're doing well. If you have to measure it, you're in trouble. Was it Myron Tribus who said it, or Russ Afanov? <laughs> no, that was Russ. Okay, okay. That's where I heard it first. Byron was an interesting guy too. He could have easily have said that. Oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Myron was here at Rockadine, and he was here for a presentation. But he asked if he could be here for the whole day so he could get around and see things. And 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 the answer was yes. And we scheduled lunch and invited managers and executives to attend. And there were probably. 15 people, maybe more at the lunchtime. And it was just sit around and eat lunch and talk. And Myron, only one executive showed up. And, and yeah. Myron was asking people at the table, some managers, some willing workers, if you will, and, and my boss, the executive, is going around the table asking them what, what they do about quality in, the organ in this organization. And so people were saying things. And then when it got to be my executive, the VP's turn, he started explaining what the organization he's in charge of, the department quality, was doing about quality. And he got about 30 seconds in, and Myron looked at him and said, excuse me, but you've misunderstood the question. I'm not asking what your organization does. I'm asking what you do. And it hadn't occurred to Wally that, 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 that it was – that part of what was going on, if not the main thing that was going on, had to do with him. That's a surprise for most executives. Deming brings up here something that's intriguing because being a former school teacher and having to subject people to grading systems, because I guess I didn't have the good sense to say I really don't have to do that. Something I learned from David Langford, he has a way to make sure the grades are pretty much irrelevant. Everybody ends up with an A and can prove that they did the work that qualifies that grade. But what we used to do in the, quote, math department, we'd take the scores on a, on a test that we gave to every Algebra 1 student, for example, and we'd score the tests and then we'd put them up and look at the, look, look at the distribution and then we decide that at a certain level, these were A's, B's, C's, D's. And it was clearly a very normal bell-shaped curve. And so we were distinguishing between the low end of the curve, the high end of the curve, and the middle of the curve as if those were different and distinctive performances. And I do remember, while I didn't have this understanding, I recognized that our testing method wasn't clever enough to be able to distinguish between somebody who managed to get 91% right and somebody who got 88% right and say, those are substantially different. And I kept asking them, I said, why do we, and they said, well, don't you see, we got a group of grades here, then there's a little space and they've got a bunch of scores down here. So that's a good place to draw the line. I said, well, yes, that's a place to draw the line, but how do we know the testing is actually making a distinction? 
And the answer is, from Deming's perspective, if everybody's within that normal three standard deviation of the average, there is no distinction. That's the same performance. The variation is inherent in that system. Uh, this uh, takes me to one of the podcasts from the Deming Institute. Uh, since you spoke about the normal curve, uh, that, that lady who was heading that uh, organization that supplied to McDonald's and how she kept on changing <clears throat> the grading system from ABC to A plus and A minus and B plus and B minus. And then she put a point system and every single time there was a normal curve. Deming brings up in here under management of people, the interactions and interdependencies. He's got a, he shows if you've got A plus B plus C plus D and those are the individuals and you've got their performance, you also have the performance of them working in pairs, working in triplets and working in, uh, in groups of four, et cetera. And when he writes it in the, in the, on page 130, you can clearly see that there are way more interactions than there are individuals. And what I get out of that is, if you're trying to make a difference in the organization, the leverage, the power, is in where the numbers are. And he points out that those interactions, whether they're doubles or triples or any other number of people interacting, the interactions can be zero, negative, or positive. And a manager's job is to seek out the interactions and try to turn them to positive. And that's certainly gonna give you way better performance than trying to make each individual person better in and of himself. It's another systems issue. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Uh, negative, zero, positive. But then sometimes uh, he, he made that statement that in a system you need optimization. And maybe in optimization, sometimes uh, something should be negative so that the, the whole system comes out ahead. I would offer that sacrificing right. myself to help the group is creates a positive interaction and a positive okay. result. A negative interaction would be me looking out for myself. I'm supposed to bunt, but I decide to hit for a home run. Or I'm supposed to spend more money in my expense account and have my expenses be over the limit I'm supposed to have for the month because it saves several other people during that month and there's a net savings. So that's a positive interaction from my perspective, even though I've spent more money than I'm supposed to. Right, right. Uh, I remember the statement he made in the video, the Deming of America, defend your rights, you lose. Yeah, why is that? That if I go in only thinking about myself and not about the system, and I'm thinking that I'm gonna come out ahead, then eventually I'm going to lose because the system loses. And if you're in negotiations with somebody, so supplier or customer, for example, or even competitor to competitor, when you're in negotiations, the, the, the parties involved in the negotiation form a system. <laughs> and so if you're that competing with each other, you're limiting the gains that can be made in the performance of the system. And yet, that's how we're taught to handle ourselves during <laughs> negotiations, whether it's 
the wages and salaries, or whether it's customer and supplier, whatever, whether it's boss, employee over a raise, or student and teacher over a grade. It's not about looking at it as a system. It's about defending your side of the story, if you will. Yeah, I, th I think it's an, an interesting point that he also makes about how we um, we like competition in sport, um, and when you're within that context, yeah, grading people is is fine, but it's when we carry that over into other areas um, that it becomes inappropriate. Yeah, and I I, I was always fascinated when Deming listed uh, as in the end of chapter three, the things that, that are cooperative in nature that we don't see because we're told everything's competitive. I was thinking about competitive sports. What's fascinating to me is how much cooperation it takes to have a competitive sports league. <laughs> you can't have a league unless you agree on the rules, unless you agree on the schedule. There's a whole bunch of cooperation that has to go on or you don't even have a league. And yet yeah. what we see is the competition. And I, I was surprised to find out, because it never occurred to me, that when the sprinters over the years, guys that run 100-yard dashes and 220s and 440s, over the years the times have gotten faster and faster and, and, the, and the athletes have gotten better and better performance. And the perception is it's from the competition between one athlete and another. What's interesting is I found out that a whole bunch of them practice together. <laughs> so they learn from each other and then they compete. And the question is, is the competition driving the performance or is it the cooperation that's the, yeah. that's the contributor to the performance? I'm sure it's both, but I didn't realize that they practiced together. I assumed they each went off in their own little corner with their own coaches and practiced alone. Yeah. Well, the, the, the other thing is like the use of a pacemaker to get a, a record speed. So, yes, you, you, you could win the race, but all be subpar scores. Um, but you yeah. could win the race with a personal best or an Olympic best. And that almost means more to them than the, 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 the placings. Yeah. Yeah. It, <laughs> that reminds me in Brazil. In football, soccer, it's tough to be a national coach because the Brazilians want to win, but they're not satisfied with winning if you don't play the beautiful game. So you have to look pretty winning. Looking pretty and losing is no good. Looking ugly and winning is no good. You have to look pretty winning. Deming mm. introduces the plan, do, study, act cycle here. It's the one I mentioned uh, before that I didn't recognize the title. I always thought it was the Schuhart cycle for improvement. Then I look at it and it's a Schuhart cycle for learning and improvement. Because this is this activity is the way you learn by coming up with a theory, gaining experience, and comparing the experience to the theory. And learning can lead to improvement. Certainly improvement, if you haven't learned, making an improvement is pretty tough. You might luck out and make an improvement accidentally. But he's talking about creating intentionally creating new knowledge and then that new knowledge leading to improvement. He says there that the PDSA cycle originated in my teaching in Japan. 
if you're interested in more on on either Plan Do Study Act, Ron Moen has a nice article having to do with the history and, and uh, of the Plan Do Study Act cycle, and uh, and in the in the booklet on the Deming Institute in the Dropbox, I sent you a link to. There's a, a supplement to the the videotapes associated with a four-day seminar, and there's some information in there on Plan Do Study Act. Deming also in this chapter talks about a program or a project that goes through phases and that the earlier phases, I'm sorry, the latter phases, the later phase deserves that the earlier phase spent more time, energy, and resources so that the latter phase can do better. And he shows a uh, how how the money might want to get spent. He has a graphical display of it on page 138. And that's very different from the way most organizations manage their projects and their expenses. But Deming was adamant, as he is with the Plan Do Study Act cycle, he says too many people are in a rush to do something, so they, they give short uh, attention to the plan part. And as a result, the do and the and the study part that come later suffer from not having done the planning very well. And he's talking about even more generally in a in a project where you start with the earlier phases. If you don't spend the time and energy on the earlier phases, the the phases that come later suffer. And overall, you you are less effective and more expensive. Uh, and 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 he's offering there's another way to do things. Yeah, uh, on page 133, when he speaks about ACT, what I like here, he says, adopt the change, abandon it, or run through the cycle again, possibly under different conditions, different material, different people, different rules. It, it says, don't be satisfied. I mean, don't confuse success with success. You could be successful uh, not because of what you're doing, but in spite of what you're doing. So I think we need to keep looking. We need to keep looking. Thing on projects and, and spending more money at the beginning, that's quite interesting to me as a project manager um, doing major projects in oil and gas, because actually that is what um, is, is now the view. Um, they call it front-end loading. Um, and there's now <laughs> an expectation that you do exceptional front-end loading. Um, you spend a lot of time, not necessarily money, because the money doesn't really translate. You spend your money in execute in actually doing the work. Um, but the amount of time and effort that's put into front-end loading or a phrase select define, however you put it, um, is, is something where most big projects nowadays won't let you go on to the next stage until you've proved that you've already done um, all the work that could be done and should be done at that stage. That, that's that's interesting because I, I know that's not prevalent at least at, uh, at this organization. <laughs> and Deming, Deming mentions the job of a manager is is not to optimize any one of those phases. It's to optimize the the system as a whole, which is all the phases and the end result, <laughs> which is often not how it's done. Each of the each of the phases seems to be in competition with the previous phase. 
sometimes because a different person's in charge and he's each one of the people in charge is trying to impress everybody with how well he or she does things and so it becomes a contest in sub-optimization hmm. yeah I, th hmm. I, th I think there's a there's another example of it going back where he said that the reason why he when it was grading papers that he read the papers not only to see what the student knew but so that he could see what he had taught and how he could improve the way that he taught yeah that's that's clearly a, a view of the student teacher relationship as a system with variation yeah. and and how do we learn from it and and i i know in the oil and gas um i've done a lot of sort of uh, the project stuff is often often we we come with a objective up front we want to build something and only later do we then get into once we've finished most of the planning is we we would spend like one page on scenario planning what if risk x or risk y um and very much was nothing more than a sort of fill the page because someone's going to look at it yeah there there i think mentioned it maybe the first session somebody mentioned hoshin planning there's there are some pretty effective ways of doing strategic planning and having it ha, having the ability to work its way down into what you're going to do on a daily basis hoshin planning is uh, probably the, the the most renowned one for being able to make that happen but most American companies don't seem to spend very much time on planning. Hi, it's John here from the UK. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this development all the way through from planning for a new engine, where Deming's talking about the idea that it's got to be a flow rather than a sequence. Yes. And, and I think the root here is that this is about incorporating feedback from earlier segments of work so that it is a contributory thing rather than uh, what do you call it? Well, you're narrowing down your options. You're possibly enlarging the range of them. And and at the same time, he offers that, you know, if you're going through this phase project and you've gone through five phases and you're entering the final phase, the sixth phase, phase coming up with a brand new idea of what you should be doing, that's the wrong time. If you you want to bring up the new idea early on when there's still a chance to go with the new idea. You haven't committed all your resources and all the work toward one idea and at the end of that have somebody come up with a brand new idea that they think should be done in place of the one you've already spent all the time and energy on. And, and that's where the idea of getting everybody together and getting the creative ideas out and getting and spending the time and energy up front to selecting the one or two that you want to proceed with and and I, I don't see us spending very much time doing that. One of the things that uh, I see in most companies is that we really don't know how to get the ideas out front. And so it's just sort of as a point of information. If you take a look at a website called Liberation Structures, Liberation Structures, it is an incredible way of getting your ideas out front. Uh, they have like 20 different types of methods of how you bring out your ideas from the group. Let me just give you one example. I recently was in Nicaragua and had my students there 
and we did a liberation structure on how can we improve the care that we're giving to our uh, patients in Nicaragua. And we used something called one, two, four. And what we had is we would say, how are we going to improve our patients? And everyone would write down three things that they think that would improve the care of the patients. Then after about three or four minutes, we had that each person meet with another person in the group and they discuss their concepts with each other and bring it down to four great ideas. Then we had the two go to four and we again had them discuss the ideas and taper it down. So, and, and finally we went to eight. So eight people all talking about the subject of how to improve things. What you have during this time then is the person writes down their thoughts freely. They then interact with people, they prioritize, and at the end, they come up with a list of the things they have. And then as a group leader, I would go to each group and say, what is your best idea? What is your best idea? What is your best idea to the 60 kids that were in that room? Within the space of an hour, we had generated 35 excellent ideas, rated from top to bottom, and things that no one would have gotten if we had done a brain session. So if you're interested in this kind of thing about how to bring out the ideas, take a look at that liberation structures. The one, two, four, eight, which I described as sort of like their go-to thing. Or at your next meeting, rather than just saying, let's talk about something, just say, write down three things, then talk about it with somebody else, and then get in groups of four, and then get in groups of eight, and then see what comes. The thing that's that I found so neat about it is that it's incredibly energizing. Everybody's talking in contrast to our most meetings where it's just kind of quiet. One person's talking. So take a look at that, liberation structures, if you really want to get those ideas out front. Yeah, the, the way, ways of generating ideas are invaluable. And, and as I mentioned earlier, De Bono's six thinking hats and his lateral thinking uh, are, are, are also ways where you can generate try to generate ideas and then decide on how you're going to proceed with the ideas. And this sounds like I'm not familiar with it, but it sounds like another way of generating ideas. One of the things you're going to find is you can't implement an idea you haven't thought of. I found uh, Deming's tongue in cheek here on page 140. He's talking mm. about divided responsibility. And he talked yes. about a time card and the signatures on it. And he has at the beginning <laughs> yes. of one of the, one of the paragraphs, he says, the reader will perceive at once the source of the problem, two signatures. I can tell you this reader did not at once figure it out. If he hadn't told me the problem, I don't think I ever would have figured it out. Yeah, I, I could share a little story here. Uh, when we were going, you know, we had the great ISO 9000 certification. And uh, when we were making a document, we had four signatures on it. It was uh, prepared by, checked by, approved by, and released by. And uh, every single document in the company had four signatures. And on the day of the audit, the auditor pointed out a small error, uh, a decimal point, a 0 0.1 and 0 0.01. And uh, I remember we defended ourselves saying, oh, it's a typographical error. And he said, oh, I understand that but there are four people signing this, didn't one of them see it? Yep, the, that's, the, that's the idea of divided responsibilities. 
opposed to joint responsibility. <laughs> yeah. I had a similar thing when when I when I was working in a division that was Energy Systems Group. When you needed documentation signed off, depending on the type of document, there was a list of who had to sign it, and there were somewhere between eight and fourteen signatures to get engineering documents bought off, and yet they were, still came out the other end with errors. And the and the quote fix that we made was we had the guy or gal that created the document, the author, if you will, signed it, and the manager responsible for the product signed it. And if, and if the manager wanted other people to look at it, that was fine. He could get them to look at it. But from a point of view of issuing the document and saying it was good to go, as long as the manager signed it, it was good to go. And if there were errors in it, we weren't going to look at the stress guy or the thermal analysis guy or, or anybody else. We were going to look at the manager who said it was okay. It's his responsibility, since that's his group, to make sure that the, the product he's delivering has gone through the proper vetting. And we reduced the amount of time it takes to get things signed off. It did increase the amount of time it takes them to get prepared in the first place, but we didn't have the cost of recovering from the errors in the documents. Uh, it dropped rather significantly. And I remember teaching school, it's another kind of thing. When you turn people loose and, and tell them, give them a name and a purpose and what they're responsible for and how that fits in with the system, wonderful things happen. The state law in California, when you're a teacher, they allow you one sick day per month of teaching. So in a typical school year, you're teaching 10 months, so you get 10 sick days. Um, and if you don't use them, the, you know, that one year, you have 10 plus the next year you have an additional 10 so you can accrue these 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 sick leave hours and in school districts where the state law became the contract with the employees there was an average number of, of sick days used for each of those districts one of the districts in northern california decided that instead of saying this the, in the contract with the teachers, instead of saying the requirement is the state law, they said teachers should take time off when they're sick, however many days that is, and they will be paid for them. So there wasn't a limit. In that school district, the average was way below the average days off in the other districts. And what you found talking to teachers, I was a chief negotiator for our school district, so I got to talk to a lot of teachers, what they saw was they had been gifted 10 days to use any way they wanted. That's what they saw. Their perception was it, it, they were limited to 10 and they could only take 10, but if they didn't take 10, they were crazy. They should figure out how to take 10. And so every, almost every teacher was using 10 days driving the average up. And other <laughs> districts started doing it and saying, no, take as much time off as you need. And then you manage that by exception. If somebody took two months off, you have to go find out what's going on. I think helping people understand, Deming has an example elsewhere about, about bereavement days and a company that was very hard-nosed about who was a member of the family and, and how many days off you got for bereavement. I think it was it might have been three days, and if two of them were weekend days, you really only got one day off, et cetera, et cetera. 
and they had a change of heart and decided you should take whatever time off you need and they had less restrictive definitions of of uh, who who was a family member and you could get leave for and the total number of leave days taken off dropped it's amazing yeah. what happens when you give people responsibility i i agree with that but i just want to put a bit of a caution on that one too with a um with an example from netflix actually uh, this was a huge case study because it led to very surprising results. What Netflix did is they actually abolished taking time off. They said you can take as much time off as you want. If you feel like you need a week or a month or whatever, we're not we're not going to worry about it. We're not even going to count the days you take off. So basically, you're you're free to do whatever you want as long as you know certain criteria with the deadlines and all that are met. And what they were thinking is, they were actually thinking, oh, we're helping our people. They're going to take as, they can take as much time off. It's in their hands. We're not even counting the days that they're taking off. So everybody is paid basically 365 days. Well, that did not happen. They actually see that people are taking less and less time off. And they actually started to sacrifice their family time or even holiday time. They didn't even take holidays to stay and work what they realized is that actually led to an unseen competition between people because they still look at their teammates seeing that hey you're taking time off while the rest of the team is working or you're going on too much holiday or you're taking too much sick leave within the team even though the company is not imposing anything like this and they actually had to go back and abolish that approach and say okay we have 20 30 days whatever so it was just a very interesting case study um, that's come out lately in the IT world. I just wanted to throw it out there. Yeah, re recognizing the the that something you've implemented is creating division and competition or fear is a necessary condition for being able to react to something that during the planning stages you thought was a good idea. You had a theory, you you implement it, you do it, maybe in a small scale, maybe full scale, like it sounds like. Uh, this organization did and then look at the what you get the feedback will help you understand whether or not your theory was proper in the first place and if you do the study part that Deming's talking about you start to identify what might have been deficient in your theory or what might have been deficient in the way you tried to implement it etc because the study and plan to study act is more than just checking to see if you got the result you wanted it's looking at what did we learn and what can we learn from the way we planned this to the way we executed it to to what we're how that fits in with the aim of the organization and and i think certainly you can try things and find out they're not as effective as you would have thought but if you want to learn you need more than just as deming pointed out more than checking plan do check act it's plan do study act because it's you want to go back and look at everything and see what you can learn having come up with a theory where did that theory come from maybe that was your problem and having planned to execute it and then having engaged in the execution hey, um, what do we learn from that um just a quick one um up in europe we we went from a, a company structure this is a while back, another company, but we went from the company structure by each country, working on clients in that country as our best customer, to a pan-European approach where we, we appointed people as um, 
say working for Ford as as looking after everything to do with Ford or looking after everything to do with another customer. So people went from taking a, a country role to becoming pan-European role, looking after one large multinational customer like Unilever or whatever. And, and they just disappeared. And they were never in the office. We didn't know where they were. And um, furthermore, they were banned from coming into the office because they were not supposed to have a desk. I was supposed to work from home, and so we we had never any problems of of family conflict, of people uh, having to try and squeeze in and do phone conferences in noisy environments, of people travelling all the time, of uh, people doing a lot of work but no one noticing the good work being done, and other people who were still sitting in the old structure, being seen by the bosses we were getting large bonuses because they were the ones picking up all the extra work. <laughs> so um, without a theory, you're going to get yourself into a huge mess. And and the best people were picked and put into these pan-Asian roles, and they, they most of them left. They said it's just not worth it. Wow. A, a method for reducing the quality of the organization. <laughs> Could write a book. Yeah, I remember. I remember Deming in one of the videos. He's answering a question from a participant of the four-day seminar, and 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 <laughs> Deming, he, he's he's asking about you know why about goals and you know and 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 establishing the goals, and he says, well, you know establishing goals you said you you told you told us that's that's bad we shouldn't establish goals and then push people to meet them what should we do instead and Deming says do instead that presumes you think there's something better I can't think of a better way to destroy people why would you change <laughs> now, um, Tim this is Bill I'm, I'm going to follow up on KJ's comment and it reminds me of, a, of another Rust story and, and also something we experienced. The, the Rust story is Russ Akoff was one of the, you know, he may have been the senior most consultant to Anheuser-Busch for many years. And he said, um, none of the executives took vacation. And, and, um, and he said he finally, his theory was they wouldn't take vacation because the CEO wouldn't take vacation. It's just the CEO staff. And he said, the CEO said, no, 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 you don't think because I don't, he says, well, let's try it. So as soon as August Bush the third started to take vacation, the other started to take vacation, which is not exactly what you're talking about, TJ, um, you know, at Netflix, but I'm thinking changing the vacation policy does not bring profound knowledge into the organization. So it, what you're doing is like, Introducing email into the into the prevailing system of management, it becomes a, a a more efficient way to spread blame. So it just seems like you know, theory would be if, if, if without profound knowledge, these things are just tampering. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. It looks like in Netflix's case, they thought this would be a great idea. Hey, we're, we're empowering people. In the end, they actually had to give people bonuses to take vacation. Because uh, they also realize, realize without having downtime, 
you're not going to get to the creativity level that they require or they want from people because everybody, I mean, you cannot sprint all the time, right? If you're running a marathon, you actually pace yourself and you take uh, rests even when you're running the marathon. I don't know about running marathon, but I was a long distance swimmer. So you actually do have resting periods where you just pace yourself within the race. So this is not different. You need to have vacation and downtime. So uh, that's why they kind of realize, hey, hold on, working 24 seven, 365 is not something we want that kills the creativity that kills it. I mean, there's a lot of psychological uh, studies around this. So they ended up, yeah, given actually forcing people to take vacations. And it's, it, it was, it's a very funny case study. <laughs> well, another, well, that reminds me of, this is Bill, Bill Bellows again, is um, Tim and I saw a situation where the company president announced that uh, they wanted to reduce travel costs by 20%. So people even as a as a reason not to travel, then the president had to go to some I mean customers, you know, government agencies and apologize that the staff was not supporting their meetings. <laughs> well, you said not travel. And it was and I and I and we'll just stop right there. I mean, this this could happen anywhere, not just where Tim and I worked. It can be anywhere. <laughs> you just can't make things up. But people, and, and, but people hear it, and it's not that they hear it. I mean, they're, I think the essence is people are trying to do the right thing, but, but I think the bigger picture, what Tim's trying to bring about here, is that um, this tampering on the edges, like what Peter Senge talked about, you know, rearranging deck chairs, um, on the Titanic, it's it's insufficient and can be destructive. Maybe, yeah. I've I've, I've got a good one on that one. Uh, one of the companies I worked in recently was they had some directors there who said we've we've never we've never taken a sick leave, and um, when one of the directors got sick, uh, pretty much eight of the senior staff all got sick as well. And it got to the point where um, while someone might be saying they never took a sick day, the people were all getting sick and they said it's a sick building because that person won't go away. And um, in the end, people left because it affected their families and children and, and they were expected to stay at work even though they, you know, they, they even wore a mask. And um, this, this peer pressure was just, you know, I mean, I left. And um, good as, <laughs> it was stupid. <laughs> it was it was uh, destructive, destructive behavior. Yeah, part part of what Deming sees as the role of the manager is to help unite people and help help them learn how to cooperate and provide them the means to be able to cooperate. And if people have a common aim. And a common understanding of the aim and a common method for achieving it the manager's job is pretty simple because cooperation is a natural activity under those circumstances so for me one of the roles of a manager is to make sure everybody understands the aim in a common way and understands the methods that are going to be used to help achieve that aim 
Peter Sang um, Peter Schultes used to say, it's not what your mission statement or your vision statement says. It's yeah. what what it, it does. It's what it does. And so what it does. the mission <laughs> needs to offer, the statement needs to offer a common understanding of the aim of the organization, of the system, in order for people to be able to figure out how to support that aim. So uh, it comes to, this is Amber from Australia. I'm on TJ's uh, mic. Um, it also comes to understanding um, your people as well. Um, uh, management, yes, support cooperation um, without competition and all that. And But it's also important to understand your people as well. As Deming um, points out, that people learn in different ways. And, um, so, um, and with that also comes with people work in different ways. They, they're more comfortable in different environments. And, and what if you look um, what's happened with companies, either they cram people in cubicles or they just have open spaces where there's just heaps of noise and all that. And it's important to also understand how you know their people work, what type of work do they do, and what kind of environment, a working environment they can do for the that type of work that their people will be more comfortable working in. And um, so, yes, people do learn in different ways, but people do also work in different ways. I believe that's very important too that could be expanded upon. And I like, yeah. um, we went to Aileron um, um, to the seminar and all that, and I, I really also liked what they were doing as well, how they had different environments for, you know, people to um, work in. If there was, you know, group work, they had that type of environment. And if it was more isolated, they need to, they needed their privacy and all that. So, you know, what kind of Google and all that old IT companies are kind of doing all that campus approach um, as well. So that's something that, you know, you know, needs to be explored as well to understand your people, to, to understand that they learn in different ways, but they also work in different ways according to what type of work they're doing. Yeah, and, and uh, not only just according to what type of work they do, but according to their personalities. I, I remember reading, like I haven't looked back to find out where it's from, but I was reading here at, at this organization, they were implementing what they called, uh, I normally called 5S, but they had safety or something extra in there, so there were six S's. And that's generally done on the shop floor, so there's a place for every tool, everything in its place, a place for everything. They wanted to make that happen in the office area, so they're running around with, you know, cubicle police and that sort of stuff, making sure the areas were neat. But I read a, a study they had done with office workers, and they found out people of a certain personality type, their brains function better and they're more productive and more effective if their areas are in what others might call disarray. And people whose brains work in another fashion need that everything in its place and a place for everything. And if you're one of those people who works better when everything's in a place and there's a place for everything, the an area where there's stuff all over the place is very distracting and disconcerting and it reduces your effectiveness and your performance. So as you're t pointing out, people are working in different ways. Putting somebody who's kind of scattered with everything physically and that's the most, that's 
his personality and that makes him the most productive next to somebody who's everything in its place and a place for everything is going to create difficulty for each of them. And, and, and so having spaces say, Hey, you guys that think this way, that's fine. You guys can hang out over here. You guys that like neat and clean everything in its place and a place for everything. You guys have your, your area to hang out in. So I, I, I think that's important. People learn in different ways and work in different ways. Mm, yes, on, on that one, I, I, I had quite a lot of dealings with lawyers. And I remember I walked into one law office and I saw Apple Macs all on the desk. And it was beautiful and clean. I thought, wow, this must be, you know, a fantastic law firm. Um, not bad. But then I walked into another law firm and, and they were just files piled up all over the place. And in one of the board meetings that we were having, um, talking to the lawyer, he says, oh, look, we need some money. Hey, go over to that file and pull out 50000 because it, we, we tuck all the money away in all these different files. <laughs> <laughs> uh, John Bachman over in Rochester again. Um, this discussion about workplace, there's actually a book called The Best Place to Work. It talks about these psychological factors, and then it talks about how to create an environment for that. The name of the book, again, The Best Place to Work. It's just a fun book to read and interesting history about how, how things got to be the way they are and how to make it so much better. The author's premise is that nobody ever considered psychology before they developed the workplace. <laughs> as Russ, Russ Acoff points out that a, before the Industrial Revolution, uh, work, play, and learning all happened at the same time, simultaneously. It was part of your living. And then the Industrial Revolution came along and we created three different institutions, one for work, one for learning, one for play. And when you're playing, you're not supposed to be learning and working. When you're working, you're not supposed to be learning and playing, etc. And he said it's unnatural. And that unnatural translates into less effective than if we were doing all of those things together. Deming offers one of the lessons from the red bead experiment is that on the job, anyone has an obligation to try to improve the system and thus to improve his own performance and everyone else's. But in the red bead experiment, the willing workers were victims of the process because they weren't making any changes or improvements. I, I, I notice in a, a document from 1990 when Deming was talking to European executives two versions of production viewed as a system and the second one shows all of the elements of the system with <laughs> rings drawn around rings. Them. Yeah. and he's highlighting the damage that this does and of course here it's relevant in the sense that when you start to draw a circle or a boundary around a team you're limiting teamwork and you're limiting cooperation yes and 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 you, the ideas that are going to come from the team that you created and the investment they're going to put into those ideas, there will be a tendency for them to look for the return on the investment within the team boundaries. They're less likely to say, we're going to invest our time and energy. So that team over there can save a lot of their time and energy. This is John Perazzo in Las Vegas. So this standard errors and tests of significance are drawing a line around things. I'm just trying to get a handle on that. Now, Deming, 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 having a lot of knowledge about statistics, was upset about the way 
a whole bunch of statisticians who maybe should know better were using uh, inferential statistics, if you will. And what he's pointing out is that, and Deming talks about when you're managing, generally what you're after is looking at multiple methods and trying to figure out which one might give you better results. And if you try to use statistics that are designed, what he called enumerative studies, where you're counting things, those counts the statistics apply to. But as soon as you say, which system is likely to be better out into the future, what you studied in the past does not tell you that. It takes something other than statistics to help you. So what Deming was talking about, he was, he was railing against the misuse of, of statistics and applying them to what, to what he called analytical studies, studies where you were trying to look at different methods of doing things and choosing which method you might want to go forward with. Deming talks about in the lessons with the red beads that, uh, you know, that it's a display of bad management because of the way management handled things. And he, and he talks about the fact that the, the, everybody that was in the system, everybody that, all of the willing workers formed a system of performance with a predictable range. There was a predictable average, a predictable range of variation you were going to get. And that information would allow you to decide what was going to happen, to predict what was going to happen next week rather reliably or the next day. Um, and, and he points out that it means that when you talk about the system being the same, you have to ask, what do we mean by same? The system, if it stays the same, is going to give you the same results. What's the same? Well, if you change the beads and the paddle, you may get a different result. If you change the willing workers, you may not get a different result. So what would a change be? And statistics don't help you understand what's going to happen next week. They may help you understand what happened last week. And so he's looking for management to be able to recognize when you have variation that's predictable and therefore manage the people based on your understanding of what variation is predictable within a range and part of the system and what variation is a special cause, something outside the system. And what I think is great with making that distinction when you're managing people, if you have somebody performing on the low end outside the system, not just the low end of the bell-shaped curve, but clean outside the system, they are clearly doing something different from what everybody else is doing. And it may be because they can't do what everybody else is doing, but you're obligated to go try to find out what is generating that special cause result. And if whatever it is has an element of training and you can train this person, you can, you can create the same, the same behavior that the others are engaging in, you will get very much the same performance of the others. So that person's performance will be improved. And if you find someone who's way outside the distribution on the positive side, if you can find out what he's doing that's different, and if whatever he's doing is trainable, teachable, and learnable, you can get the others to start doing that and shift that whole distribution. So it's, it's an amazing it's an amazing technique to be able to ask yourself the question, is the variation I'm seeing 
coming from common causes or special. And if it's coming from common causes and you don't like it, then you need to change something fundamental in the system. But if it's com coming from a special cause, you may be able to help those people that are performing way lower than, than the rest of the group to perform like the rest of the group. And you may even be able to to shift the performance of everybody in the group by understanding what somebody performing way outside the group is doing on the positive side. Uh, uh, something that struck me as quite profound in here was the piece about what do you mean by the same conditions and where Deming is talking about not being able to predict the bar X results from using a different or a new paddle. And I confess I'd never thought of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah in, until I read this, I didn't think about it. But clearly, clearly, if you use uh, a random number generator uh, and 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 did bead pulling based on you know beads all having numbers, and you had a random number generator, and you ran fifty numbers, then you grabbed those beads, you would think that that's going to give you a result since twenty percent of the beads are are red and you're going to pull a load of 50 that's going to give you on average 10 red beads with some range of variation and, and the, that might be true if you're doing that kind of sampling but when you're doing mechanical sampling there's physics involved there's the shape of the beads the size of the beads the friction on the beads the shape of each of the holes and if the paddles if you change the beads those elements associated with the physicality the physical nature of the beads changes if you change the paddle the physical nature of the paddle changes and so you're getting a bias a, a, a bias compared to what you get when you're using pure statistical methods with no physical world influence and while any given set of paddles and beads will tend to toward an average you don't know what that average is going to be until you've used that set of paddles and those beads. And if you change the beads or the paddle, he changed the paddles three times, I think, oh, four times, and got four different averages for the number of beads being being pulled with each load. Yeah, I, I remember reading about Deming talking about his different paddles and um, how one paddle had a certain statistic that when he changed it, he was quite shocked. Um, and he he tried to understand why the why the spread was totally different, and um, and it just showed even him that you know uh, you change your testing equipment you, you could be in for some rude shocks when your yes. base population is still the same. I, I encountered the same uh, experience when I began conducting the red beads. I I used a wooden paddle, and then later on I started using an acrylic one. And, and yes, uh, the, the difference was astounding. And, and, and it's not to say that the statistics are any different. What's different is that the physical nature of the things you're dealing with when you're using mechanical sampling have an effect on where the average is going to end up and the range of variation, the, the distance, but the, the, what would amount to th three standard deviations each side of that. And but what Deming's talking about with the distinction between common cause and special is the reason we make the distinction is not so much based on all the statistics. It's we're trying to distinguish between when the variation you're getting is inherent in the system 
And if you want to attack that variation in some way, move the average or narrow the range, you need to change something fundamental in the system. And if you're getting performance within the system, you can't assign one, one, one day's worth of work of pulling red beads versus another any meaning. Uh, this time you pulled four red beads, last week you pulled 14, you're getting better. The answer is you're not getting better. The range is 2 to 19, <laughs> and both of those are the same result. It's all common cause variation. And so for Deming, I believe when you have common cause variation present, all of the variation within common cause is the same result. So when my car mileage varies from, from 28 miles to the gallon to 32, and it has all kinds of bouncing around in between there, on average 30, but goes 28 to 32. All of the data between 28 and 32 is the same result. I get different numbers, but it's the same result. The system is the same and the output is the same. Now, if I change the way I'm driving or I change something fundamental in the car, I might get different results. Yeah, this so, is what I did so for India. When you, you when you actually perform the red beads, uh, I mean, when you play the role of the foreman, it's amazing. Yes, it's the same result, but every time a worker makes the red beads, you seem to have an explanation of why he did it. Uh, oh, yeah. you're, you just need to do that. It's silly. You're better than last time. I, my classic case on this one, I remember watching the red beads, uh, Dr. Deming doing this, and he said, that makes you an average worker. And then he tells the people on the other side, you're all above average and you're all below average. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. what's, what's interesting about collecting data, if you don't understand what the data is telling you, you could use what's going on in the red bead experiment in your organization. If you start collecting data, you could find proof that rewards don't work and punishment is very effective. And the way that happens is if you look at the red bead experiment, when somebody pulls out 15 red beads, he puts them on probation, so they're punished. But because they pulled out 15, next time they dip in, it's likely that they're going to be closer toward the average, which is 10. So they're going to get better. So he has evidence that when I punish people, they get better. He rewards them. They only pull out three red beads, which is unusual, but they pull out three red beads. He, reward, he rewards them. Next time they dip in and pull out beads, it's going to tend toward the average, which is 10, so they're going to get worse. So he has data that proves that rewarding is, is not effective and punishment works. One, John Bachman in Rochester, Minnesota, there's a wonderful video online. If you Google uh, volleyball coach regression to the mean, and he explains uh, this phenomena uh, of what, what's going on, and he talks about basketball, and it's just hilarious of how we are fooled by the numbers and such. Uh, uh, so if you're interested in just watching a video, a regression to the mean, and I believe it was volleyball coach, sir. Tips for volleyball coaches. Thanks. So Dr. Deming uh, believed in these two chapters. He was going to help you, help us 
start to understand how we might manage people and thus the organization. And it's, it's certainly different from the prevailing style of management, and it is based on a system of profound knowledge. It's understanding systems, appreciating a system, understanding a variation, psychology, and, and theory. The, you know, the, the interesting theory that, that the foreman had or the company had in the experiment with the red beads is that if they keep the best workers, they'll get better results than they did when they had six, six welling workers. So they dropped it down to three with the best being there, and they got pretty mm. much the same results. So they 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 just they somebody I think it was I can't remember who it was, but I remember somebody saying somebody of Eastern descent rather than a Westerner of saying what he found fascinating about what he saw happening in in the United States is somebody would have a a theory and they'd get evidence real world experience that was contradictory to that and they're instead of asking what's wrong with my theory they they start exploring what's wrong with the world what's wrong with the experience <laughs> so any uh tag in comments we're nearing the end of our 90 minutes any tag in comments on uh, on management of people or the red bead experiment or anything else for that matter i know um pepsi pepsi did a fantastic um youtube on um, bas on basketball where they dressed up a pro player as an old man and he turned up at a night game just in the local local block and these people were playing and he, he just came on as an old man you know sore legs sore back but suddenly he'd turned into a star performer and no one knew who he was um which is a beautiful example of special cause to the positive um and and you can watch that one it's he's got quite a few different shots uh, many different episodes and i think it, it just goes to show that you know we're here for the for the good and for the benefit of others yeah yeah the aim the aim is 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 belonging to something we all want to belong to something bigger and then our aim is to cooperate to make a bigger difference and, and the way we can make a bigger difference is cooperating with each other, working toward a common aim. Well, thank you all for joining in. Uh, I'll send out a post-session note. And if you've got something that you would want to share with the others, let me know, and I'll, I'll pass it along. We're going to, next time Monday, we're going to work on uh, Chapter 8, Schuhart Control Charts which is a methodology yeah. for distinguishing between common and special cause. And the funnel experiment, which is an experiment on tam tampering with a stable system and how that affects the variation. Please join us in the new economic study sessions. Register today at www.deming.org and click on events. If you can't attend or want to catch up the Deming Institute will provide edited versions of each session through iTunes or at podcast.deming.org.